0: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And our guest today is Aliza Klein, who is the founding executive director for One Table which is an online and in-person hub for millennials to end their week with intention and create unique Shabbat dinners. She's also the co-founder of Mayim Chaim Community Mikveh and Education Center, which is an international model for reimagining a Jewish ritual open to the full diversity of the Jewish community. Eliza was awarded an Avi Chai Fellowship in 2009 and authored the article How Shabbat in Israel might cultivate a lifetime of practice. I've asked Aliza on the program today to explore the impact of the one table model on our community and what lessons we might learn in looking at this model of engagement. Welcome to the program, Aliza. Thank you. So we'll begin as we always do, just with your own personal journey and how you got into this position. So
1: I would say my journey for this particular position really began with chocolate milk, which is to say that I grew up in a small city where my family's Jewish practice, if it wasn't rich and joyous at home, would not have been a major part of my life because there was not a substantial population elsewhere. So what we did in our house was critical to identity, knowledge, experience, happiness, and my parents were hellbent on the oneg of Shabbat being the emphasis. So on Friday night, I did not have to finish my vegetables to get dessert. I could literally just eat challah and dip it into my wine, and that was sufficient. And in Shabbat mornings, I got chocolate milk. And I got chocolate milk in a crazy straw in the special cup, and that was the only time of the week that I got that treat. So there was an immediate positive association between the celebration of Shabbat and chocolate and happiness and treats. And I did not realize until much later in my life that that was highly uncommon and that a lot of people either had no association or one that was less joyous. And it's been part of my life's work to be like, what, this is fun. This is good. It tastes good. It feels good. brings you happiness. How can we do this so that Not everybody likes chocolate milk and crazy straws. So what's joyous to you, right? Like that worked for me. My sister was lactose intolerant, so it did not work for her. She had other joys. And I think that the baseline appreciation and happiness and love for bringing Jewish practice into my life, into my home, was sort of by training for this position. More broadly speaking, I've been working professionally in the community for a long time and continue to find myself... In entrepreneurial opportunities, there are a lot of really interesting opportunities for engagement and learning and justice in existing organizations. But I've also found that I'm best suited with an opportunity to create something de novo, not the ritual itself. I think there's plenty of Jewish ritual that exists, but access to it. You mentioned in my introduction that I'm also the co-founder of a place called Mayim Chaim, which is a community mikvah and education center, an art gallery, which has, I think, had a really radical impact on the way people perceive that particular ritual. And after spending 10 years talking about one of the most hidden and mysterious and high barrier of Jewish rituals, the opportunity to then work on something that was about Shabbat dinner, which is, I think, on the other side of the spectrum, as open and accessible and adaptable and portable as possible, with a completely different challenge that I was really excited about.
0: Awesome. So let's just kind of dive into the work. Tell me a little bit about this model and the theory behind it, and maybe a little bit of history of how it came to be. One of the things that I think is important to
1: note about one table in our approach is that I think it's really been a partnership between philanthropists and certainly me and as a professional and now our team, since its inception. This is not something that I thought of and then went to get funding for. This is something that significant philanthropists were thinking about how might we, without necessarily using that language, but how might we get tens of thousands of millennials to have a practice around Shabbat dinner for all the right reasons so that they can have communities, they can have that same joy of the chocolate milk, so they can feel a sense of belonging, and probably for some of them, so they'll have Jewish children and a Jewish future, right? And my background is in design thinking, which is sort of a very Silicon Valley jargon way of talking about the best languages is human-centered design, which Mm -hmm. also sounds wonky. But all it means is that I'm not designing for the ritual, I am designing for the person. And I'm not designing for me, I am designing for the population that we've identified. So when I started this job, I was already into my 40s, been married for 15 plus years, have three kids and an active Shabbat practice. In all the ways, I am not the target population. So how do I gain empathy for the people who are in their 20s and 30s, who may or may not own a dining room table, let alone matching plates and dishes, may or may not have had a practice related to Shabbat growing up, have confidence in inviting people over. I mean, anywhere in terms of understanding where to begin. So one table well before it was called that, started with a series of questions. My first hire was a talented market researcher named Jamie Batesh who came and identified a group of observers who were in their 20s and 30s who could find out what people were doing on Friday nights and literally observe and participate in dinners, underground supper clubs, fancy young adult Jewy things, people with their pajamas on Friday night, you know, like all kinds of things to find out. What do they want to be doing? What does Shabbat mean? What does hospitality mean? What are the barriers getting in the way? As much information as we possibly could so that we were actually designing to understand the needs and the values of this population and also how the population breaks down. So someone in there who's 24 and has recently moved to town is totally different than someone who's 34 and might be partnered and or, you know, has a tight group of friends, right? They have very different needs. And Shabbat is incredibly, if you just observe what they do on Friday night, you can tell how different their stage of life is, Mm -hmm. even though they generally get lumped together into like, you know, 20s and 30s. And I have to say that one of the things that's fun is once you start identifying trends and see enough and then you share it with somebody and they're like, oh my God, how do you know that about me? It's totally exciting. So for example, 22 to 26 is generally, it's called seekers. That's the stage of life where on a Friday night, you really need to meet new people. You might have dinner with a group of people and then you're going to go out. And that doesn't matter whether you are, uh, you know, your practice, you know, around Judaism is totally traditional or totally non-existent. If you have a traditional Jewish practice, you'll have dinner with some people and then you'll all go to an Onik Shabbat together. If you're new to Shabbat or it's irrelevant to you, you are most definitely going to be at some kind of thing where you can meet new people because it's such valuable real estate. As you get closer to 30, the need and desire to go out and meet new people lessens. And you're much more interested in deepening the relationships that you already have. And also the likelihood that you want to travel a lot on a Friday night is slim. You're tired and you just want to kind of hang. Right. And have a very different experience, which I think is so interesting. People are buying tables around 26, 27, which changes the way they engage with people around the table their ability to support others, their language about if we introduce Shabbat as something you can try versus a lifelong practice, the language sounds very different in different stages. And so we needed to design something that could work for both, right? That if I can design something that works for a recent college grad who's new to town, and also someone who has the practice and a particular community, if it can work for people who are diverse in their attitudes towards Jewish practice and their knowledge of it, as well as provide them access to be with the people who are important to them without me dictating that, which means there's been a a large number of queer Shabbats and Jews of color Shabbats and social justice themed Shabbats and birthday Shabbats and A.E. Pi party Shabbats, right? Like that we can create an opportunity for people to get together with who they find valuable and important and experience Shabbat in a way that they also feel has integrity and authenticity. Then we've designed something that more people can use and can really grow to scale that was sort of the broader vision. And when you start a new organization that's targeted at this stage of life in 2014, you have a whole new set of technology that didn't exist prior that you can access. So there was a whole world of social dining platforms. I didn't even know that language before I took the job, but it's basically like Airbnb for food. So a host has a profile, the guests sign up, they pay or sometimes they reserve a seat at someone else's house. We're like, oh my God, that already exists. Can we use that for Shabbat? Will people use it? So we could prototype on the third party platform, found this really nice guy named Noah Karish, who was the CEO and founder of Feastly. He was a Moisha House alumnus, like all the right things. <laughs> like, yes, I love Shabbat. I'll totally yeah. let you do it. And he allowed us to have our first thousand dinners where, you know, they were first called startup Shabbat Then we called it one table Shabbat and we did them on his platform so that we could test out whether people would indeed use a platform for Shabbat hosting. And then there were all these other things people like, I don't have time. Like, I get off work at six or seven. How could I possibly go shopping? Or how could I find time to cook? We're like, well, Every company has now. There's Instacart. All of a sudden, you can get your groceries delivered. There's right. you can order from 500 different restaurants, kosher, not kosher. like it can come right to your house. You need decor, or you actually want Judaica. Go to Etsy. Like there are so many things that exist that One Table built all of these. what are called B two B relationships with One Table as one business. You know, as an organization going to another to provide resources that would make it easier to host for the participants. So we were able to kind of try out different things by leveraging all these resources that existed, all with the same deep intention and integrity about introducing Shabbat practice into people's lives with a focus on dinner. Because dinner is, we all got to eat and everybody likes it and it's social and it's both universal and extremely particularistic and frankly accessible. So it seemed like a most strategic way to begin.
0: So to kind of shed a little bit of light on the actual process, from what I understood by, you know, looking at your website, there seems to be two kind of phases of interaction, right? So you've got the person who's coming to your website who wants to attend a dinner, and a person coming into your website who wants to host a dinner. And so I'm curious with this first kind of person, what those barriers to entry really are, right? So I moved to New York City and brand new. And I look at all these dinners, right, that are being hosted and I'm like, I don't know anybody. Do I just like click one and be like, maybe they're cool and then show up by myself. Like that feels like a lot to, necessarily a lot to ask, but just like seems like a big barrier. Maybe people from 22 to 26 are more adventurous than, <laughs> than I am now in my 30s. But how do you kind of help that process be smoother?
1: We can break the guests down into a couple different categories. Probably the most common guest. So let's say Julia is hosting a dinner and you, Michelle, are somebody that she knows. So you get an invitation with a link to the platform and it takes you right to the dinner and you can then RSVP through the platform. So that's probably still the most common way for people to come, at least for their first time. Or she invited her friend and her friend is bringing you as a plus one, right? That She's using this and expanding it. So you don't know Julia, but you know somebody who knows Julia. And so that's one important element.
0: And one table doesn't care, right? You don't really care so much if it's a bunch of new people or if it's a bunch of people who already know each other. It's the fact that they're getting together about dinner. Yeah, and yeah. I
1: would say if we were reaching 100% of the people who would be doing this anyway, then that would not be a good use of philanthropic dollars. Right. If we are reaching people who, you know, if if this is a super host and the host does it all the time, but now because she's doing with one table, she invites people she doesn't know, or she is specifically inviting people who she knows don't have an experience. Like Mm -hmm. she's inviting her colleagues from work. She's inviting her fellow alumni from summer camp or something who are thrilled to do Shabbat, but are not doing it on their own otherwise. Right. So we will coach people who have a practice to expand their circle, or if it's a host and guests who are new to it, then that's also great. We are interested both in breadth and depth. So in terms of the number of people coming to the table, we want you to have a dinner that's going to feel good to you. And the barriers to hosting are high enough that we're not going to require you to do certain things. We want you to create something that works for you. And the guests guests tend to know at least one other person at the dinner but not everybody. Almost never do all the guests know each other unless it's like, you know, we're all getting together. It's like the, it's a birthday for, you know, Michelle's turning 30 and we're all coming together for that. In Mm -hmm. that case, you'll have a hundred percent of people knowing each other, but that's less frequent actually. The other guest that you mentioned is the person who's new to town. So more than 50% of our participants have been in the cities that they live in for less than five years and they are, they're not balancing their high school friends and their college friends and their new work friends and their family. They are really actually looking for a connection. And so they will start clicking on different dinners. From the beginning, one of the pieces that we learned is that a big barrier to being a guest is FOMO, right? Is fear of missing out. So if I RSVP to one thing, something better might come along. And right. that can be so paralyzing that I missed everything. And one of the cures for that is clarity and expectation. So who is this host, right? What does, you know, what's his name? How does he identify who else is going to be at the dinner? What's the menu? Is this a fancy thing or a casual thing? Like everybody, no one wants to feel like an asshole. No one wants to like show up with one expectation and then be completely wrong. That is enough to burn you for a long time. So the clearer we can get the host to be about articulating the goal of the dinner and the feel and the menu, and whether you're wearing shoes or bringing your own boots or any of those things, the better. We give the host a lot of opportunities to be really clear so that the guest can not only RSVP, but then actually show up. A lot of the reason that we use the online platform is it not only helps the host articulate what she wants to achieve that night, but it helps the guests actually show up. Like it gives them enough information to know what to expect so that they'll feel more comfortable actually RSVPing, which is not a natural behavior for
0: a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. It's a very ubery model, <laughs> which is great, which is really kind of how, you know, we're moving away from, we think you should do this program and we're going to set up this program for you to do the, we're going to connect you guys and let you do whatever it is you want to do, preferably, you know, of a Jewish you know, nature.
1: Well, correct. I think that it's a platform. That's, I mean, you know, one of the things that we talk about is that One Table isn't a program, it's a platform, which means we are providing access and invitation and resources for you to create something that's going to be most meaningful to you. If we want to create something that is on a great scale, which was definitely part of the vision for the philanthropists initially, then it can't be One Table staff facilitating. There are 52 weeks. How many of those weeks could we have a professionally facilitated Shabbat dinner? That's one question. And we'd just be completely limited by staff time. Your staff would, by the way, burn out immediately. And you're attending an event that is professionally driven. Our theory of change is that you are more likely to try this yourself and integrate it into your own life if your peer is leading it. And if you can then try it yourself in your terms. So there is a lot of license, meaning, Michelle what does Friday mean to you? Like, what are you hoping to get out of this? That is beautiful and legitimate. And how can I help you elevate it? How can I give you the tools so that you can feel like with integrity, you're hosting a Shabbat dinner. I think it's like 66% of our hosts name their dinner Shabbat and the remaining 34% put it in their description. So 100% of the folks are articulating that this is clearly Shabbat, which is why our name is not like Shabbat is us, right? Like that's when right. that we change from like startup Shabbat to one table because I want you to name it. Mm-hmm. That has much more power than me naming it. I want you to set the intention for the evening and the menu. But if you are paralyzed because you do not know how to cook or do not know how to set a menu, I will coach you through it. Or oh,
0: don't know how to sing the prayers or not quite yeah, sure. I, I will encourage you like, to find
1: a friend. Exactly. So maybe one of your guests can do it. And if not, here are the resources and how do you want to elevate the evening? These are the three rituals that are generally in most Shabbat dinners. How do you relate to them? We've had enough one-on-one conversations with hosts over the years that I can tell you like some of the, you know, where their questions are likely going to lead and how we can best anticipate them so that we can meet their needs as much as possible. But frankly, I think there are social concerns that supersede the Jewish ritual needs to get started. Social anxiety concerns can be huge barriers to actually opening your home to have people for dinner, even if they're your friends. Like, it's not a normative behavior, especially in America in this generation. So we are asking people to do something that is somewhat countercultural. You have to have a lot of empathy as to what those barriers are.
0: Mm -hmm. So
1: I said jokingly before, a lot of people don't have tables. So. What, can you have a dinner on the floor? Of course you can have a dinner on the floor. What does that look like? Like, let's come up with a new theme. Let's do a Bedouin theme. Let's do a pajama party theme. Like, whatever it takes. Right. Lower the barrier. Like, you. yes, of course you could do it that way. You're going camping? Yeah, Shabbat is Friday night. Wherever you are, that's where it is. So where are you? Incorporate it into a way that it's an incredible starting place. So we will have literally coached people in terms of the social anxiety piece. Like, how do you word your invitation so people will feel comfortable coming? How do you plan the course of the evening? So if someone weird shows up early, like, what's the role that you give them? So that, you know, what do you do with a really loud person? Like, how, how do you kind of manage <laughs> that? Timing, oh my God, like, I, the, you know, the recipe is for four people, but I have 10, <laughs> right? Like, and then there's like a pod. Yeah. Like, do I do? like, okay, well, we'll help you with that. Yeah. And then comes like, yeah, know, what's a Jewish question that could start a conversation and not lead to people feeling weird? Like, that's another great one. The, right, and it oh, seems oh, like you've
0: sure. outsourced that support to this model of coaching that you have these individuals that are there to support you in this endeavor of yours and connect with you to answer these questions that, you know, you're not just, you know, emailing info at one table and hoping somebody has some answers Right. Right.
1: Right. They, so we have now 125 Shabbat coaches who have been recruited and trained by one table. And they are as diverse as our people, which is really important that there should never be one monolithic look, feel, style, or approach to Jewish practice. And so since our users are diverse, so are our hosts, our coaches, excuse me, they are buying in. They really think that you doing it your way is really important and I can, they can help you to elevate it. It kind of is a thrill for them and it's a thrill for us. And many of those coaches were super hosts, right? They, we started recognizing, like, wow, you are doing this really well. Everybody yeah. loves it. I you know, have satisfaction data. Like you should, could we ask you to coach other people, yeah. right? And, and so that becomes also sort of a peer-to-peer network and support. And in the coming year, we're experimenting with how we might impart some of that Jewish wisdom through technology also, right? How do we weave it into the app? So if you do not avail yourself of the one-on-one coaching, but you have a last minute question. Can you find it? How do we help you elevate it? We did a series of Shabbat dinners. And when I say we again, it's not that one table hosted the dinners, but we gathered resources for a campaign called Together at the Table, which was right after the white supremacist march in Charlottesville, where there are a lot of people feeling like, "What the hell are we supposed to do?" And at minimum, let's open our homes and be kind to each other and build community. And how much Shabbat be the prompt for that? So we had seventy different organizations sign on and a few hundred dinners called Together at the Table, and in some cases that will help someone who has never thought of hosting a dinner inspire them to do it. And in other cases, it's people who are already doing something, and gives them a reason to do it again or to elevate their dinner. And in other cases, it feels too foreign and too much like a national campaign being imposed in my personal home. So we've been watching kind of both directions there. So we're playing with when can online resources complement the in-person coaching, but I don't ever think it it's going to top it. I think the kind of the bespokeness of, one-on-one coaching, you know, is the most effective thing we can do.
0: You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Before turning to my conversation with Eliza, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next podcast episode. David Breifman is the Chief Innovation Officer at the Jewish Education Project. He discusses with me the process the organization went through to reinvent itself and the effective work it is now doing in the very diverse field of Jewish education. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation.
2: It's almost like you're peeling back the curtain on our organization. So it's no secret, really, that the Board of Jewish Education, the Jewish Education Project, was set up and funded by UJA Federation of New York to service the New York population. And that's primarily our core function and responsibility. And yet New York Federation and ourselves have acknowledged that New York is one of those communities that has resources that can spread to other communities. And with technology, it makes it even more able to do so. And we do do a lot of that sort of stuff at the moment. We are trying to invest heavily in our educational technology and how we actually disseminate more things you know, through digital means. But I'd also do want to mention that over time, while maintaining our core support and work in New York. We now do have several projects that run on a national basis in other communities and on a national front. The biggest one being the teen initiative that we're doing and the large research that we've been doing in the teen space for many years now, supported by the Jim Joseph Foundation and other foundations. And we're seriously in conversation now about what it would take to actually expand the agency to maintaining its New York focus, but having a footprint nationally. Be sure
0: to listen to the rest of my conversation with David in the next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Aliza. So I kind of want to focus the conversation a little bit on what we can kind of take from this model, right? So I don't really necessarily see the applications as much with general Jewish organizations in our climate. I'd really like to focus on synagogues. And my husband was the community engagement manager at our synagogue in Los Angeles and helped to revive Shabbat Across Sinai program where they, you know, put everybody in each other's homes for one Friday night to be at one table, to have Shabbat together in somebody's home. And it was so interesting. I mean, lovely, amazing event, had huge participation, but it was so funny, the struggles, right? That, well, we should have everybody come back to the synagogue to be together at eight. And you're like, well, do you really want to like pull them away from a good conversation to do that? Or thinking around, well, if we do that, we're pulling it away from this kind of central place. And although, you know, you have a professional platform that is not easily replicated, right, this took a lot of volunteer hours to place people and confirm and cancel, and there wasn't financial, you know, reimbursement for food. So it definitely was a little more complicated than, you know, the structure that you've created. But really trying to think about for synagogue employees and engagement employees and synagogue leaders and those that are looking at their community and saying, got start to start doing something. Really this idea that, you know, if somebody's just like, hey, tonight I want to host some people, my doors are open at the temple that I am involved with, like, come on over. And what a threat that is to the rabbi holding Shabbat services to say, oh, well, this group of people are going to go have Shabbat dinner at somebody's house. And how Maybe employees or synagogues can start to think about the home as not in competition with, but as a complement to the work that's done in a synagogue. So I'd just love to hear your thoughts on how do we explode this in a bigger way in our community that it becomes more of a norm?
1: A couple things that I would just, you know... Echo. And and actually, interestingly, I'm not involved in a synagogue community very actively right now. I am involved in my day school community. And they just did a Shabbat across also. And it was also very, you know, incredibly labor intensive and also very successful. And I had two families over to my dinner that I really didn't know. And it was completely lovely and wonderful. And I'm also totally confident that it's going to take more staff for that to happen again. Outside of certain segments of the Jewish community, this is a completely enjoyable and totally unnatural behavior still. Mm -hmm. And part to blame are our big, beautiful institutions that realized that people weren't doing it at home. So we started doing it collectively and had services. I mean, even when I was a kid, we used to eat quickly so that we could get to services by eight. My dad was also the rabbi. So there was not a question there. (laughs) There
0: you go.
1: And then learned about the opportunity of having earlier services so that then you could have a longer dinner and, you know, all of those kinds of scenarios. I think that the synagogue was the solution when they realized that people were not doing it in their homes. Well, then let's create a community experience on Friday that became very valuable. And that became so much so that people who might have been inclined to do it at home were no longer doing it at home or that they become the outliers. And the question is, like, so how can we do both? Like, there's, how might we approach this with abundance? instead of scarcity. I mean, I would be totally delighted to generate 8,000 ideas. And I think there could be very fun things that we could test out. I mean, this was a prototype that they did at your husband's synagogue, right? And it was a successful one, meaning people signed up to host and people showed up as guests. Mm -hmm. So yes, there is interest. And they were not doing it without that help. Okay, so now we know that we need to rethink the role of a Jewish community professional. Like maybe their role is actually being a community manager. So community manager is the language that tech firms use to help people meet up in real life. So all of these companies that are helping one-on-one meets, how do they bring other people together? That's called community manager. And that's a great term. Like, what does that look like? And the question is, how might the synagogue get credit for all those seats at each other's dinners Right. just as they would for filling the seats at the synagogue, right? Is it that we start with once a month, services are at five or six. And so if you were really need that Shabbat fix, or you're saying Shiva or whatever, you know, excuse me, saying Kaddish, then, then you have the community, but then you also doesn't impact your ability to have a Shabbat dinner together. Or what if you know, the once a month where we do Shabbat across, there are as many Shabbat across dinners as can be seated there's a dinner at the synagogue so that if you forget to sign up or it's too late, then you have dinner collectively. Like there are solutions here that can happen, but I agree. It's measuring success differently, you know, and, and also acknowledging like that the rabbi herself or himself can only have so many people over to their house for dinner. And what does it look like to be able to spread that and model it so that there are 20 or 30 or 50 dinners happening? One answer to your question is like, there isn't a problem. Just, it's okay to just try it.
0: <laughs> right, right. And, and
1: that like, what if we just didn't see that as a problem? What if we just saw that as a win? And what if the members of the community could say, you know why I paid membership here? Because it's helping me build relationships that are valuable. And sometimes those relationships have the rabbi at their center and they take place at the synagogue. And a lot of the times they take place in people's homes. And you know, because I'm a member of this community, I get to meet people that I like. Like, that's incredible value. I do think it's a total shift. It's counting success by the relationships and not counting success by attendance.
0: Right. And it's a different kind of experience, right? Someone can come to your synagogue, walk in your door, sit down for services, enjoy services, go over to your own nosh on your cookies, and go home and not talk to a single person. Or talk to a, oh, hi, this is my name just moves you know and but when you're sitting at somebody's table for three hours you have conversations that are you know so deep and rich and meaningful that you can't really even when you do a community shabbat dinner right it's kind of rushed because you have to have services and the people are coming and going it's trying to figure out how to kind of localize and just kind of build up that meaningful connections and experiences that i think a lot of institutions struggle with
1: yeah i think the other thing that is an important element to this which is that when you come into the synagogue, you have a certain amount of control, right? You can control the quality of the ritual facilitation. You have a professional leading it.
0: Mm-hmm. You can control
1: the quality of the food and or the kashrut of the food. You can control the way Shabbat is introduced because it's literally professionally led. And there is a risk when you have it in someone's home because you can't control the quality of the food or the timing of the service. Right pronunciation of the Hebrew. And that is really scary for some. So I actually think we have to address that, right? Like there is a lessening and giving up of control when we are encouraging people to facilitate for themselves and a little bit of fear that we don't need the institution. And what I would argue is, of course you need the institution, but you may need it in a different way because I'm telling you, most people eat alone. The data about people and when they eat dinner by themselves or with their phone in front of them is alarmingly high. And it leads right. to social isolation. And it happens for families and the families that parents are talking to the kids. It happens all the different generations. There's mountains and mountains of the data. So what's the solution that we can have that's going to add value to people's lives? And what's the risk that we take by doing it? What's the risk that we take by not doing it? Like I think all of those things we can talk about, but better than talking about it, it would be just trying it. Right. And I love that where your husband tried it, it was successful. So the question is, What does it take to keep doing it? I think it still t- requires professional support. It's just professional support in a different way. Like, I have a staff. My staff don't host the dinners, but my staff recruit the hosts, support them, remind them, like, oh, you want to try it again? How about now? How about now? Right.
0: <laughs> hey, good job. How
1: about doing it again? Right. This is a good time to do it. Oh, Friday's coming up. And that's their entire work.
0: <laughs> and you're also, you're focused. focus, right? This is this your is what entire... Th- Correct. You're not also balancing, you know, lots of other activities and ages and... Correct, yes. Things. No, that is the hardest job in for the Jews. There's no yeah. question. I'm curious, kind of last on the particular topic of your model. So you have a select number of cities that you operate in. Given that you are a platform, what are the barriers to it just being open like I live in New Jersey why can't I host an event in New Jersey yes you can so So
1: actually to answer this question one is we have hub cities and in hub cities there is usually a part or full-time professional who is paid for with local philanthropic partners which is really important because it's growing fast and when you have a hub there is most definitely going to be just higher numbers because there's someone doing that like reminding and loving and supporting and cheerleading and recruiting and all of that so for example a city with a hub might have 20 to 50 dinners in a week whereas a city without a hub might without a hub manager might have 2 to 5 There have been actually one-table dinners in over 80 cities across the country. Because it is a web-based platform, it really can work anywhere. I thought you were going to ask about international expansion, which is a totally fun question. Yeah. um, And one that I I think, uh, please God, will eventually happen, but... Definitely not before the end of 17. I
0: was going (laughs) to say, then you're running into a lot of international (laughs) changes because you're funding people when they do their dinner. Well,
1: there's funding stuff, and there's also the interesting challenges that we have, which is the the benefit of the technology is that actually there are different privacy laws in
0: different
1: countries, which is just things that not all of us would think about. Again, if it's a professionally facilitated program in a public venue or a synagogue, no problem. But as soon as it's in someone's home... And there's technology to use that. Then you actually have to learn all of the laws that govern online platforms in Australia versus Europe versus Canada, I mean, right. that it's sort of a, that's like that's a new area of knowledge that I now am doing. Yeah. But yes, you can use it everywhere. And part of our challenge is finding what we call nourishment partners. So Michelle hosts a dinner. She is eligible now for what we call nourishment credit, which she can be redeemed from those online partners I mentioned earlier. And we want to make sure that we have places that are national. So for example, we have a partnership with Whole Foods, right? So you have one in almost every community. And because we both want you to have something that is local and valuable to you, but also practically speaking, can actually help you achieve hosting a Shabbat dinner very quickly. Right. Those are the only things that slow us down. It's a totally scalable model. The more resources, the more dinners. So it's, for us, a matter of sort of making sure that we have enough supply to meet the demand.
0: Great. So let's hear a little bit of your advice, whether it's people you know, who work in synagogues or even you know the larger Jewish community and federations and other organizations that work with this particular demographic. You know, what's the, you know, the, maybe the millennial professional in a Jewish organization that, you know, wants to bring something new and exciting Even, you know, professionals that are trying to help others in their organization understand the program to platform model and helping, you know, kind of move more in the connecting of people versus the disseminating of programs. So I know that's kind of a lot of different things at once.
1: Practicing curiosity is, is a practice. I actually had question marks like around my desk to remind myself, even though I like literally teach design thinking, I have to remind my own self to like, hmm, that is weird. Let's ask a question about it. Like to pause and understand why is a person behaving that way? How come, I mean, here's an interesting data point, right? 70% of the guests who come to a one table and they're like this is so awesome I want to be a host myself and then maybe 15% of them actually apply and 5% of them will actually do it i think that everybody's going to see kind of numbers like that right which is you can put out the most amazing incredible opportunity and there will always only be a small fraction of people who want to take a leadership role who want to take a risk and put themselves mm-hmm. out there the majority of people still want to be guests right? Right. The majority of people are so psyched to show up and to be the Jew in the pew and to participate. So that is there and that is real. And on the other hand, if you trust that people do in fact have meaning in their lives and they are looking for opportunities to deepen it, articulate it and elevate it, that is different than assuming that you have to bring meaning to their lives. That sounds like a nuance, but it's one of the very first things I learned on this job. I was in the job for maybe a week and a half and I was trying to sound very smart and sympathetic. And I was speaking to a millennial about, you know, how, look with Shabbat, I can help you have meaning in your life. And she's like, you know, screw you, Aliza. I right. had what are you to <laughs> me that my right. life is meaningless? And that's what it sounded like to her. And we yeah. say that all the time, right? You'll come here. You'll get meaning. That's If
0: only you knew what we did. You would... Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, no, that is a completely different thing, which is like, I can provide you pro tips, so that you can do this in a way that you're going to feel really good about it. But you have to understand first what the population that you are designing for, what do they value? What do they need? And when you can articulate that, then you have an opportunity to either create the program for them or like to get out of the way and let them create something that's meaningful. But that doesn't mean, by the way, that they have enough resources to do it at the rate that they want to do it. Both of the organizations that I've been able to shape Have had a similar philosophy, you know, which is absolutely elevating, beautifying. I care a lot about aesthetics, not because of devaluing, but because of elevating. The admonition of of hidur mitzvah, right, means that when you drink your wine, you don't drink it out of a red solo cup; you drink it out of a beautiful glass, because it elevates it, right. And if you're going to go to a mikvah, which is what I did for ten years, it should be beautiful and welcoming, and soft towels, and all those kinds of things. But in either case. I want you to be able to articulate your Mm Kavanaugh. There's no judgment over whether that's a good enough reason to get your friends together on a Friday night or to decide to take this particular ritual for immersion. So when you come into the Jewish space, how can we shift our resources so that we are helping you achieve what you want rather than making you like us? right? It's an important sensitivity. And of course it takes curiosity. And then some people can articulate exactly what they want
0: mm-hmm. and
1: most cannot. Right. So now comes the coaching and or the other support to help them figure out how they want to feel at the end of this. What if every bar or bar mitzvah, B mitzvah kid could articulate how they want to feel on Saturday night afterwards and or their parents? And then right. what if we could design towards that? Right, (laughs) revolutionary. Oh my god! Like, why not? And instead, we have a lot of fear. Well, if it's individually led, then we are taking away from the value of the community, and I think that is just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it's a reframing of long-standing thinking and comfort in a way of engaging people, and I think the technology has just kind of been thrusted upon our community. And there are organizations like yours that have started in the 2000s that are, you know, grabbing that baton and saying, woo, like, let's go, let's do this. And there's everybody beforehand that's still trying to figure out how do we adapt right? So it's a lot easier to start from a new place. Okay. I agree. <laughs> I agree. It, yeah. To kind of evaluate and look at what you're doing and change and mold to the new environment we find ourselves in that's, you know, a very fast paced, constantly changing environment.
1: So how do you, if you are a newer professional or a mid-level professional, you don't have the same kind of positional power that I have to be able to say, this is the pace. This is how we're going to work. This is how we're going to fail. How do you manage up so that you get the space and the permission to try new things? How can you say that instead of spending a year and a half planning something, piloting it, and then evaluating a <laughs> an year and a half later, right? right? How might we try three new things? Like, mm-hmm. So my job is family engagement or early childhood education or support of our empty nesters or whatever it is. How, instead of launching a year-long program, can we say our goal this year is going to be to try three new things and see what mm-hmm. works and see what is more resonant? And the success is trying. And everything that we learn is a win. So mm-hmm. if no one shows up, that means this wasn't the right thing right, and right. that's the learning, right? right? And if one person shows, right, like, and instead of blaming the user for not knowing about it and not showing up, right, which we always do, how about we question, huh? What could we have done differently? Was it the time? Was it the subject? Was it the price point? Was it the- The way we
0: connected with the people that could- Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So like if we turn it that way, then every time we try something, it's an opportunity to learn something. Mm -hmm. It's totally win-win, but you have to be given the permission to try new things. Otherwise, the fear of failure can be paralyzing.
0: Wonderful. Well, as we are closing up, I want to kind of turn it back to you. You mentioned having a family- I don't know if you're still as involved in Ayim Chaim or not, but you definitely have a full plate and i just love to hear about how you keep it all together and get everything done and still find the intention and the meaning (laughs) in all of these pieces.
1: In full transparency, sometimes I take better care of myself than others. I work really hard to get one or two yoga classes in a week and if I can't do that, to go on a run or something to move my body. I really like Netflix. I'm really into escapism of shows, and I like them to be funny. I don't watch violence. I don't watch things that are going to like make me uncomfortable and sad, because reality does that plenty. I like the escape from it, and I have little hacks like that. I think what I would say is I work on being present. No one ever had to tell me to be focused at school or at work. That is something I come to rather intuitively, and I know that not everybody does, so I'm acknowledging that. But that means that when I'm home. With my family or with a friend or by myself, I have to actively turn it off. Like, I really have to yeah. sometimes do a breathing exercise. I have to sort of, you know, like if you're studying meditation and the thought wanders in. So I'll be like reading to my child and a thought about work comes in and I have to pause, you know, and like, let it go, and then refocus. Right, and knock out uh,
0: your phone and send that email. Or yeah, email.
1: exactly. I think that that's the thing. Like the goal is to not miss my family when I'm at work, and not miss work when I'm at my family or by myself, which is very limited in my current stage of life. And and then there's a lot that goes into it. I wish I could say that you know I'm as fit as I can be, and I can <laughs> as, as I could. I will tell you that you know when if I have made time to get a manicure. That for me, it's like an external sign that are like, oh, Aliza's got her act things are together. Good. <laughs> it's, yeah, things are good. I think at my stage of life, it's a lot of little things that add up. I vacation when I can and I enjoy, you know, a glass of wine and a piece of dark chocolate on a pretty regular basis and those little things add up. And there is no doubt, and I don't mean this as promotional, I mean, this is totally honest, that Shabbat is a 100% an anchor in my life. I really do... I don't know how, if the speed of my talking on this recording is evident, but I generally think and talk and move fast. And I think without the sort of external commitment to Jewish practice and Shabbat, I would be hard for me to slow down and do that. And, you know, I'm asked by my kids on Wednesday who's coming.
0: <laughs>
1: and, you know, and, and each person has a particular role. And I really yearn for it and love it and need it. And it's become an entirely home familial experience for me at this stage of my life. The only time I have to struggle is when we travel and try to figure out how to to make it fit in. But it's never a question of if, it's always sort of how. And knowing that that's coming and that I'm going to be doing something special and I'm going to be with people who I love, that is completely liberating for me. I don't have to think about what to do that night. I know Mm -hmm. what I'm going to do that night and I like what I'm going to do that night. That provides a lot of joy and balance too.
0: That's awesome. That's very cool. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for sharing your work and your life and your intention with us and really appreciate your time today.
1: My pleasure, Michelle. So great to talk to you.
0: As I mentioned before, this year I'm focusing a bit on what I'm calling millennial organizations, those founded after 2000 and how they meet the needs of the community differently than our more traditional organizations. Lisa talks about the human-centeredness aspect of her work, designing for the person, not the ritual, not the creator, not the funder, but for the participant. This is actually surprisingly difficult to do. You hire employees and staff for their expertise in designing programs and experiences, You engage volunteer leaders and their expertise to help craft your organization's work. So to turn to both of them and say, design our work not for yourself, but for everyone else. Forget what you've been trained to think your constituents want and start by asking them. That's really not an easy task, unless you have created this as part of your culture and it is inherent in what your organization is and does. It is a lot easier when you create an organization from scratch with this culture. It's a lot harder to create this from another culture. So how do you get there? How do you get to a place where you're designing your work around the participant? It's a lot harder than the traditional model of getting your staff and leaders in a room and coming up with a program and delivering it. It takes time to engage your constituents in the planning process, to connect them to one another, to think deeply about how the experience you are creating might be perceived and experienced by the participant. What one table shows us is that the time and effort you put into planning your work really pays off in the experience your participants will have and their likeliness to return to your organization and eventually donate their hard-earned money to ensure that that experience you've created is accessible to other people. We have no other announcements this week. This program has been funded in part by the Jim Joseph Foundation. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and our fiscal sponsor is Jewish Creativity International. You can find previous episodes, guest bios, podcast articles, book recommendations, how to Start Your Own Podcast and more on our website, it's who you know the dot com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.